Our guest tonight is known for her expertise in small business and big hair. You've seen her on CNBC, Fox Business, and CNN. <laughs> she hosts a weekly podcast. No, it's a real thing, Anthony. She hosts a weekly podcast called The Roth Effect. Her new book is The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. You can pre-order it right now, by the way. Please welcome Carol Roth to the show. Hello. Hello, lovely lady and lovely gentlemen. So the title of the book, let's get right into this because this is so fascinating. The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. I mean, that's that's a lifting topic. It, it's, I mean, it's, that's hardcore. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, war on small business. I think that's interesting. It's funny. I went to type in the war on small business because I just wanted to see if that's, you know, what people were saying about not just your book, but the concept of it. Yeah. The first thing that popped up was that NBC is not going to air the Grammys. I don't know what the connection is, but for some reason, that's the first thing that popped up. Yeah, I, I can't speak to that, but yeah, uh, know why. <laughs> it was a concept that came around um, when I was approached to write this book. And it was sort of a, an interesting endeavor because my last book, which was about small business and entrepreneurship, was just me getting pissed off and you know re- vomiting words onto paper and, and put it out there. And this time I was approached very early in the pandemic and HarperCollins wanted somebody to do a, a real economic take of what was happening with the pandemic real time, uh, which I stupidly went, oh, that sounds interesting. No, that's <laughs> not realizing for that. what no. a Herculean task that was going to be. Uh, but from day one, given my focus on small business and entrepreneurs, I knew that small business was going to be a story. And right. it was all the way back in March. The first businesses that were shut down were small businesses, not based on any science, but it was just kind of like, well, here seems like some good stuff to close. And so you could have a some a hair salon or a nail salon closed, and then down the street, a pet smart is grooming dog's nails, and you're going like, I'm not sure what the science is in this. So I knew from the beginning it was going to be an issue. Then the CARES Act came out, and I put out a piece about, okay, if you're going to do this, which, by the way, is saying, we're going to take your property rights for the good of society, which is a concept called eminent domain in the Constitution, which means if you're going to do that, you need to compensate people. So, okay, I'll shut my business down if you pay me for it. Right. That's not what happened. You got this convoluted CARES Act, which threw out trillions of dollars to everybody's you know friend and crony. And then small business owners got little crumbs in PPP. Mm. And then, oh, by the way, the smallest of the small business owners didn't even get them because Kanye West was busy taking down PPP loans to start with. So, you know, this kind of whole thing unfolded. And I actually sort of wrote three and a half different books during the pandemic. Mm. But as I chipped away, it was clear that there was this very concerted attack, um, whether you thought it was intentional, government incompetence, too small to matter, the small businesses were getting the short end of the stick. And so I use that to kind of look back at what's happened over the past several decades Hmm. and our exportation of capitalism and importation of central planning and how we have moved towards this more centralized government and less free markets. And oh, by the way, what's the biggest emblem of decentralization of free markets in the economy? It's all the independent small businesses that make up 99% of all businesses. Before the pandemic, it was 30.2 million of them versus like 15,000 big businesses. Wow. 
And so it was really a way to use small businesses to get into this discussion about the uh, bigger fight between central planning and decentralization that's been going on in this country. But this has been going on for a while. I mean, you're in Chicago. I'm in New York. So I don't know if you're seeing what I've been seeing for a long time. But a good example is, you know, I live in like a very neighborhoody kind of neighborhood. There's no um, like uh, business buildings. There's no it's all residential around here. It's all like schools and stuff like that. But as soon as Home Depot came in about I counted seven small uh, hardware stores closed within like a certain amount of time of Home Depot coming in. And so that's that's something that occurs that's been occurring. And so it was made worse by the pandemic or I mean, are you seeing like storefronts that are empty like crazy? Like what what's what are you seeing that's changed since the pandemic or is it just more of the same? Yeah, so this definitely has been going on for a long time. And I think there's a difference when you think about capitalism and quote the free markets uh, between competition. So if Home Depot comes in and they're offering better prices and they're competing fairly, that's one thing. But if they're getting all kinds of tax breaks and incentives to come in and a better operating structure, and then the Federal Reserve is allowing them to access capital at, a, at lower rates and more deeply than they should have otherwise, then you're getting the government starting to favor these big businesses. And oh, you say, well, like, why would they want to do that? Well, if you're a politician and you have to go around and, and find people to reelect you and to pay lobbyists and whatnot, mm. you know, who's easier to deal with, 10,000, 15,000 big businesses or 30.2 million small businesses? Right. I hadn't thought of it like that, but that it's it's so clear when you say it like that. And that's basically the, the heart of your book. Um, mm -hmm. Anthony, did you have a question or is this conversation completely over your stupid head? <laughs> no, it's, it's <laughs> screw you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I have two Th thoughts on this one was i think a lot of small businesses were barely surviving before the pandemic Correct. um so and i think the pandemic just raced that a little bit faster to the finish line and b you know i look at i, I look at it different when walmart comes into a market and i understand that they killed the small mom and dad pop stores because they can't compete i understand that but I think as a business owner, you have to adapt to that climate now. You know, it's like the guy that was selling horses when, when the car came out, he had to change or he dies. So I think now you have to get to the point where you're, you have to change your business to survive and come up with different ways. Because there's still a lot of businesses that don't even have websites. There's still a lot of businesses that don't, you know, they don't do the minimum to get by and or they don't have a facebook page they don't have twitter they don't have instagram uh it's it's a lot of it's a lot on them yeah so i so two things so one is the first piece of it so i would argue that the government's reaction to the pandemic is what killed the small businesses versus the pandemic itself mm -hmm. because if you want to say that we were under lockdown we weren't there were all kinds of big businesses and all kinds of quote-unquote essential businesses depending on if you were well connected or you weren't that never locked down and wow. so that's part of the issue is that you have this picking of winners and losers uh, but you're right this is extended for long periods of time and some small businesses haven't adapted and again, if it's from a genuine competition standpoint, then it's on the small business. You have to do your website, you have to do the things to make uh, your services better and compete. 
But when the playing field is consistently tilted in the favor of somebody else and you're not getting any of the benefits, I mean, just think about when Amazon was moving its headquarters and it did this like crazy beauty pageant and it went to like hundreds of different cities and said, will you give me your firstborn child? Like, what do you know? Right. What, what can I get from you? And they already knew where they were going. They went to the couple of locations that they were planning to go to from the beginning and they just used it to extract more things. Like imagine Joe's pizza parlor. Like you can barely get your local rep to return your phone call, let alone have a beauty pageant. I'm like, well, I'm thinking about opening in Nashville versus Chicago. What are you giving? Like, we don't care. So Right. If you go back to the last re recession, the banks who acted badly and all the the players who did you know ridiculous took on ridiculous risks were deemed too big to fail, and they got a government bailout, and they were very important. And then you have small businesses that were mandated closed by the mm. government of no fault of their own, and then they were too small to matter or too hard to control. So you know that's that's the disparity that needs to stop. And when government centralized has too much power, those are the kinds of decisions they can make. So if the market wipes your small business out, too bad, creative destruction. If mm. the government does it, we have a structural so what's the solution? I mean, like if I have a small business or if I want to start a small business now, let's say, I mean, let's say I was laid off from my job and I'm like, you know, I have an idea for a small business and I think I could start it. Is I mean, is your advice like run or I mean is there an option what, what do you I mean what's yeah. the solution here so it's a risk reward profile I mean my first book the entrepreneur equation was about all the risks that you have when you start a small business and and like Anthony was saying all, why it's so difficult you have all these different things that you're contending with and you have less capital and it's just a hard thing to do but today the number one risk is the U.S. government potentially <sighs> coming in and shutting you down Right. So you really need to think about your business model in that context and also in the context of these giant businesses that are out there that continue to get bigger. Where do you fall in vis-a-vis -vis those? So I think in terms of the choice of the business that you're going to go into, I mean, why anybody would consider opening a you know, consumer-facing business right now um, you know, that's a serious consideration. I can't hmm. tell you to do it or not to do it, but it's certainly a lot riskier because, you know, what if there's another strain of the pandemic? The government right. just realized that people complied for like 15 months with a shutdown. Oh my God. Like we were joking around and saying like back in February, they were probably all sitting around being like, there's no way we can lock people down for like two weeks, right? Like there's no way. Right, right. We were like, I, two I, weeks. I doubt they're going to go for it. And 15 months later, there's still people who are like, you know what? I'm, I'm too scared to come out of my house. So, right. and again, make whatever choice is right for you. But I can't imagine that anybody thought back in February or March that we would be sitting here today and this would still be an ongoing issue. So right. that is a risk. And if you're going to start a business, um, you know, think about what you can do where you're not running into special treatment by the government versus big businesses and taking the risk of a shutdown. Right. That's a, that's a really good point. And, yeah. you know, you brought up Kanye earlier and I was going to ask you, I don't know if you saw today, Rock Nation announced that they're going to start selling greeting cards. And I just, you know, I get so angry because I feel like there's people out there that are real like I'm on Etsy all the time. There's people out there that should be selling greeting cards. I feel like celebrities are constantly taking the the limelight away and selling things that they have no business selling. Like, why does Paris Hilton have a scrapbook kit? What you know, what does she know about scrapbooking? I don't picture her at home like 
finding photos and, you know, finding cute little things to say underneath them. Like, I just don't picture that. You know, it's it's so odd to me that, um, you know, Ryan Reynolds has a gin and Post Malone has a rosé. It's just I, I think it's I kind of feel like I get angry, like stay in your lane. You're making millions <laughs> of dollars doing what you do. Why don't you l- let the people who make alcohol continue to make alcohol? I mean, am I wrong for, for feeling that way? I feel like no. celebrities are just taking all the business. So, I mean, listen, it's, it's capitalism. If you can do it, like, do it. Um, but I will, I'll put it in a different perspective for you, is that my guess is that Ryan Reynolds probably isn't in the back making gin. What? <laughs> he's, he's probably working with a business. And in some cases, it's bigger businesses. But in some cases, it's probably smaller, mid-sized businesses to create something. So he's that front face that you as a small business owner would kill to get right. to be able to elevate your business and take it to the next level. And that's, you know, the great thing about small business is you can keep it small and take care of your family, or it has the opportunity to grow to become the next big business. So, you know, it's not like Paris Hilton is out there stamping out, you know, little cutters and assembling scratch. She's not at Michael's she's, figuring it all out. Yeah, no. She's working with somebody. <laughs> she's, you know, she's the, she's the front, she's the brand, she's the salesperson. But that's employing more people who are earning money, who are putting it back into the economy. And so I'm looking at it backwards. It's it's probably good that celebrities are getting involved with basically yeah. small businesses yeah. and turning them into bigger businesses. So that's, I think it's great. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought of it like that. I was thinking like, God, they're so greedy. Every time I turn around, like some celebrities like buy my, you know, fill in the blank. And yeah, greed, um, greed is such an interesting, it's something I actually talk, I have a whole like, part of a a chapter about greed. And I think greed is such an interesting part of the conversation because one of the things I talk about is losing the branding on capitalism. Like for some reason, even though it's lifted like nearly a billion people out of extreme poverty in the last 50 years worldwide, and that we're all seeing the fruits of these inventions and wealth creations and living in a better time, some reason everybody seems to hate capitalism. And I think that these words get bastardized. So I talk about using free markets instead of, of capitalism. And greed is like my favorite one because everybody thinks somebody else is greedy. Right. But nobody <laughs> thinks they're being greedy. So mm-hmm. like if Uber does surge pricing, right? It's it's New Year's Eve. Everybody's a drunk hot mess. And like if you're a driver, you're like, I don't want to deal with these crazy people, the traffic, I'm just staying home they raise the price and say, well, we'll pay it, you know, we'll pay a little bit more. You want to come into the market? And that incentivizes drivers to come in to take crazy drunk people around. Right. Now, at some point, that means people are like, okay, it's too much, I'm out. And those people go and they carpool or they take the bus or, you know, walk or whatever. And then that reduces it and you find the right match. When that happens, people say, well, it's not fair. Uber's so greedy. But what happens if there's a time when it's really slow and Uber's got like nobody wants to go anywhere and they offer you a coupon? Right. You think like, you mean like all during the whole said, pandemic well, when no one was paying, going anywhere? Yeah. Yeah, I'm paying under the market rate. How is this affecting the driver and the company? Right. No, I got a ten dollar discount. It's great. So like, why are you not greedy, but the company is greedy? It's like <laughs> it's great. It's human nature. Capitalism sorts that stuff out. And it just becomes this ridiculous talking point. It's very good. Um, You asked a very important question on Twitter. You said, um, (laughs) yeah, I I love your Twitter because you always have like um, cute, funny animals doing things. And then you always ask these questions that are like everybody can relate. Um, You asked, what was the most consistently funny TV show of all time? 
So what did you find out? Like, what did people mostly say? Like, what was the consistently funniest TV show of all time? Because we had a conversation last week about it. Um, Rolling Stone had just put out their list of the hundred top sitcoms of all time, and we ah. agreed with we agreed with none of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they had weird things at the top ten. Like, was that even how many years ago was that? Like shows from the fifties. Yeah, like you know? Mash. Yeah, like that was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what did you find out? Like what was your what was your like non scientific research findings? Yeah. So uh, so it got a lot. So it's like it's still going on for whatever reason. It's it's one of those. Some of them take on a life. Some of them don't. It's like I think like over four thousand responses. So there's definitely genres, right? So you've got like your sketch comedy, and there's a lot of really good arguments to be made within sketch comedy. Um, you know, Chappelle's show, obviously, like in my opinion just consistently good the consistently, entire time. Consistently, yeah. Hilarious. Uh, but you have people who are talking about things like the Carol Burnett show, which is like, yeah, like that was consistently funny too. And then there was In Living Color. And it's like, yeah, that was pretty consistently funny too. Right. So there was like the sketch piece. And then there is the, the, the hardcore like sitcom piece, right? So you've got Always Have Seinfeld, which is pretty consistently funny. Um, I don't know why everybody, I mean, not to say that I don't think it's funny, but every time I do this, maybe it's just the people I attract, they love Married with Children. Like everybody thinks Married with Children is like- (laughs) I didn't expect you to say that. Yeah, it's like (laughs) that one comes up all the time. And so Hmm. like, maybe I just didn't appreciate it at the time. I need to go back and watch it. But that one comes back. Um, Frasier, which is- Yes, absolutely, consistently funny. And then there's one like- episode of Frasier that I always thought was really funny, and because it was sort of iconic, and people still talk about it to this day. It's it was completely silent. It was this episode that starts out with Niles, and he's preparing for I guess a date or something, and he ends up so he he sees that his pants have a wrinkle on it. He starts to iron the pants, and then he ends up setting the couch on fire, right, right, and he right, cuts right. his finger, but he's afraid of blood, you know. So um, he cuts his finger. And um, he's trying to keep his finger away from his head and he sets the couch on fire. And then he finally like puts the the fire out with his spaghetti, (laughs) the spaghetti pot from the kitchen. Um, And then he sees his blood again and he passes out at the door (laughs) with his in his underwear and the dog. Uh, I forget the dog's name. Eddie. Ed- Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> is um, eating the spaghetti. And it's just it was just so it was such a perfect comedy from beginning to end, I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, Frasier was okay. Like we're news radio fans here because we're yeah. radio people. Frasier was, was okay. It had its moments. It was super funny, but that to me was like totally iconic because it was not one word spoken and yet yeah. it was just classic. Um, he does a pratfall. I mean, I don't even usually like that kind of corny stuff, but he does it really well and he's so good. And you're like, wow, that was it. That was a moment. Yeah. They were, they were definitely clever. Um, and another one that was a little off the beaten path, like you know, in that sort of uh, similar genre, but a little bit more far removed, was Arrested Development, which is one of my favorite. But they said only the first three seasons, which was kind <laughs> of a cheat. But since Netflix was separate, I can kind of go with that. Right. Um, and then there's like the cartoons. You know, South Park is one of my favorites. Though I will have to say, I had to ding it, even though it's one of my favorite shows of all time it kind of fell off a cliff in the last few years. Mm-hmm. So like, consistently funny, like it was up until season, whatever, 12, 13, 14. And then, yeah, so. but you're still laughing when you watch it. That's right. that South park. It's hard to watch South park any season, I think, and not laugh. 
But yeah, the, most of the time, the, the vaccination special was brutal to me. Yeah. And I'm like a mega South Park fan. But so, you know, so you've got that. Um, and then there's like, you know, kind of these like random things where like somebody's like, oh, here's this thing that ran for like two episodes right. in like 2008. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I got to go check that out. And like, for whatever reason, like never picked up a thing. So, um, but it's good. I love stuff like that because it's such positive engagement mm. on Twitter, which is why when I first started, I used to ask things like, what's the most overrated and what do you hate and whatever? And I was like, well, that's kind of mean and there's enough mean stuff. So I try to keep it more on the positive side or the nostalgic side when I ask right. the questions. It's really and smart. It's like people want to engage in those positive conversations. There just aren't that many collective things that we share to talk about that are that right. interesting. Mm -hmm. So pop culture and nostalgia really bridges that gap. So those are my some of my favorite things to do on Twitter for sure. Well, Other the funny the, thing is, is all the sure. all these shows now live on Tubi or live on Amazon or right. Hulu. Just like uh, for the past couple of days, I've been watching rewatching news radio, yeah. and you can watch it like a brand new show. I mean, they right. put commercials in that are it's it's like you watch it and you go, this was an amazing show. And it's fun to watch. You can even watch Adam's Family like it's a new show. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, and just the quality of the shows back then. I mean, some of those that that popped up, you're, you're like, people were talking about like, just shoot me. And it's like, you know what? That was a, like you if you kind of in your mind think of it as a throwaway, but like it was a really funny show. And so like we forget how much really good TV used to be produced, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. No, and it's weird. And weird. Like, like younger generations finding shows that like we grew up watching. I mean, the fact that Friends is so big, it's like, really? That's, that show has not been on the air and new for like 25 years. Right. But yet, you know, I, I hear like, you know, my, my friends or my friends' kids or like Gen Z kids who are like, oh my God, Friends, you see the episode where? Or they find something in it. Like I see on TikTok all the time. They're like, do you see this? Monica, it's not really Monica. It's like her stand in here. Like they find all this stuff that we're like, how did we miss that? But so it's it's interesting how they've refound the shows that we grew up watching and think they're funny. Like I don't none of the shows my parent my parents watched are funny. Like I don't like any of them. My parents still like, oh, we should go watch an episode. I'm like, no, no. If it's especially if it's black and white, no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like an old soul. Like I don't know what it is. Like I can't quite figure out like how I consumed this much television as a child. Like it must have just been my babysitter. Mm -hmm. But like there's so many TV shows and I'm like, oh yeah, I saw that. Like I saw soap I saw, and it's like but it, it stopped running when you were three. And I'm like, I don't know. It must have been in reruns. Like, I've seen right. all of this stuff. So I, I like, I don't know if you guys ever saw Soap, but that was hilarious and had one of the best casts. Cooper ever. barely sees Soap now. <laughs> <laughs> His joke about me is I don't shower because we, li we lived together. We did it. We did a morning show together for a couple of years and we ended up having to live together in another town. And um, so he was he was privy to how often I showered or didn't shower because you're not supposed to wash your hair not, every day. You're not and you're not even unless you've been like outside, like rolling around in the mud, you're not even supposed to shower every day. And that, by the way, that's a habit that came out of the pandemic that people are calling eco friendly. And it's like, no, you're just being lazy. No, you're but just like, gross. It's good for you. And I can tell you as, <laughs> as a advocate for big hair um, and, and noted hair person on Twitter, I, I wash my hair two to maybe three times a week. 
Yeah, see, that's all you're supposed to. That's, and you, you are a hair expert. Every Friday, you do I, big I am hair the Friday. Hair People will yeah. tell you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but two to questions, just throw them right at me. If Coop, if Cooper actually washed her hair two to three times a week, <laughs> I wouldn't have an issue. But <laughs> but that ends up being two to three times a month. No, we would do. We were doing a morning show. Nobody would see me except for him. So I'd right. go in in a ponytail or a bun or a hat. So he assumed I wasn't washing my hair, but I would wash my hair. I just wouldn't do it. I never right. heard I a hair dryer. I never heard anything coming out of that room. So it's all gross. Silence. Silence. Hilarious. Um, all right. Well, so we're really excited about your book. Um, where's the best place to? Uh, pre-order it right now is Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the usual. So here's what I say. So it is available everywhere. But since my book is called The War on Small Business, I mm-hmm. will say if you want to support small business, there is a way to do that online. Um, several different outlets do this, but one that's included in ours is called Bookshop.org. And if you go to Bookshop, what they do is they fulfill the books, and not just my book, pretty much you know any major book that you want from local independent small business bookstores. Mm-hmm. So instead of being lazy and going, Alexa, why does Jeff Bezos have so much money? You uh-huh. could just also go over to bookshop.org and support a small business in the process. Now, again, I'm a capitalist, so if you find the other routes you know, more convenient, <laughs> please still buy my book. But if you want to do it in spirit of helping a small business, you can get a double win out of the situation. I love that. I mean, honestly, since your book is called The War on Small Business, you're right. We should help small business. So that is that is great. And I think that's a good lesson to all of us that we should look to small business now and spend our money there. I mean, Anthony knows, like I go for coffee at the little at Everyman Coffee on 13th mm-hmm. Street. Like I don't I would I wouldn't be caught dead in the Starbucks. You know what I mean? I, I'm I'm really supportive of small business, especially for something that yeah. I really love, that I really right. feel passionate about, like, um, you know, shoes and coffee and 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 I will have to say, I mean, to be fair to Amazon, they do enable more than a million small businesses. I think at this point, it's 1.9 small and medium-sized businesses worldwide on their platform. So it's not to say they don't, but if you have a direct competitor that you want to keep around, it's nice to support them. And if you also don't want the big company to be the only option for small businesses to go to and find customers, it's also good to, to find that because you know that's a part of capitalism. It's your choice. And if you're making these choices, then it shows up in those businesses doing mm-hmm. well. So it's just an opportunity for you to vote with your wallet. That's great. I love that. Carol Roth, thank you so much. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for uh, letting Anthony ask you his question and not judging him. That was really cool of you. <laughs> well, he has pretty good taste in sitcoms, so I feel like it all even. Oh, okay, That's there true. you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll have you back on when the book is is out in July, correct? Uh, June. June 29th June. is launch date, but it is pre-orderable um, everywhere, especially small businesses great. Uh, right now. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank Carol you so Rock. much. Really Thanks, appreciate guys. it.